Welcome to this week's edition of Critical Mass Business Talk Show. We're streaming it here on LinkedIn Live and on YouTube. And Haley Stern, our producer, has actually set us up now to stream live on Facebook as well. So how exciting is that? If you're listening to us a podcast, that's because Haley, again, our producer, has put the show up on our podcasting platforms. And we do appreciate you spending some time with us today. Super good guest. I'm excited to talk to Laura Conover. She is the founder of Conover Consulting Incorporated. Laura, we're going to talk about your uh, two decades plus experience as a compensation consultant. But I know before you launched your firm, you had extensive experience in this field. You, you, you had professional jobs. You were in the banking industry. You were branch manager at an early age. You went back to school during the night to get your MBA, I think from San Diego State. Go ask Tess. Yeah. And so, and so everyone understand this is in the context of spending time preparing to be a successful entrepreneur. Uh, it wasn't something that you just woke up one day and decided to do. But let's talk about 27 years ago. What was it about being an entrepreneur that caused you to start your firm? Um Rick, I was really thinking about creating work-life balance. Um, I didn't get married till I was 31. I knew I wanted to have a family, but also looked around, you know, 30 plus years ago, there wasn't a lot going on with respect to work-life balance in corporate America. And so I said to myself, I'm going to figure this out actually in my early 20s, so more than 27 years ago. Um, <laughs> don't say how long. <laughs> no, 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 that changes subject. <laughs> Squirrel. Um, but in my early 20s, I kind of said to myself, gosh, I'm not seeing a whole lot of opportunity to create work life balance. Like, no one's going to do this for me, so I'm going to figure it out for myself. And so I got the MBA at night. I worked on it for seven years while I was working full time at night. And um, by the time I started my consulting, I had 10 great years of experience. I had managed people as a bank manager when I was 26 years old. I had 17 employees under me helping me make my goals and um, trying to help them um, not give the bank away and make operational mistakes. And it was great experience earlier, early in my career. So you had a vision for your consulting company when you started it. And I'm wondering over the arc of 27 years, how has that vision for compensation consulting, your, your firm changed for you? Yeah, it has um, definitely evolved. When I started out, I thought of myself as, you know, someone doing compensation work on a project basis, and I still do that. But over time, I've evolved to become more of the trusted advisor, the strategic advisor to my clients. And uh, because it's not all about the money, you know, we need to get pay right. We need to know where we stand with respect to market pay for jobs in an organization and have good variable pay structures. And we need to keep all of that current. And, and that really has to do with managing an employer's biggest expense, usually, because that's my compensation piece. But then at the end of the day, culture and leadership are everything. Mm -hmm. And I have always, always been passionate about leadership and um, just have been diving into it in a very deep, meaningful way for many, many years, for decades. And so now I also do leadership and culture consulting with my clients. And 
it's not like the leadership and culture stuff is over on one side of the fence and the compensation <laughs> stuff is on the other. Yeah. I'm mixing it all up together all the time when I work with clients because, <clears throat> excuse me, I know about you know demand for skill sets and pay for certain kinds of jobs. And when I look at, well, who's doing what job in an organization, I quickly see and use assessments to help us see, hmm, maybe that person should be in a different kind of role and or this one we should develop, et cetera. So, um, and, and as I start the compensation work, I always pretty early on see culture and leadership issues that I would love to dive into with my clients. Yeah, that, that is so interesting. And if we had uh, other time, I would go in that direction because I'm curious about the assessments that you use and how you blend culture, compensation, leadership, all in that, that milieu together. So ladies and gentlemen, at another time, Laura, come back and we'll have that conversation. But- Would love to. <clears throat> deal, deal. Haley, we'll make that happen. Um, one of the things that I'm curious about, and I was excited to have you on the show, is that we're, um, I'm hearing from the businesses that I support that um, there's an intense labor shortage. And it's not just, um, you hear about it in the news, maybe at the restaurant, entertainment, and hospitality, but it's across the board, professional services. And so I'm wondering from your perspective, you, you must be consulting with your clients as well. Matter of fact, I know you are because we've talked about this. Um, what do you see are the contributing causes for this apparent widespread labor shortage that we have right now? Yeah, this is so timely, Rick. Um, first, I think part of the issue has been the additional federal unemployment that was paid um, that was ended earlier this week on the 6th. And um, however, though, there are some just much bigger picture um, kind of um, global things going on right now with employees. And um, I, here, here's some stats for you. For instance, um, last year, about 40% of American workers changed managers and or jobs. And we know that people have been moving across country you know, to different locations because people are now telling their employers this is when, where, and how I will work. Totally turning the employer-employee contract sideways and inside out, you know, it's very different. These are not the same employees we had pre-COVID. We also know that we have this phenomenon that I think a lot of people have heard of in the media recently called the great resignation. Mm -hmm. Over 4 million Americans quit their jobs this April. There have been, there are many more job openings than that. I believe in April there were 9 million openings, but employers are not having an easy time getting people to apply and show interest in work. And I think a lot of it has to do with people reevaluating their lives during COVID and saying, wait a minute, do I wanna do the kind of work I've been doing to this point? Um, if I've been in a crazy over the top environment, do I want to be in that kind of work environment anymore? Will I put up with the toxic leader anymore? <laughs> Probably not. You know, pre-COVID, people were looking at these issues, but there are huge, huge shifts happening right now in where people live, how they work, and we are not going back. We are not going back to where things were with employees and jobs pre-COVID. 
I have some CEOs that I'm talking to sorry, who have a hard time believing that, sorry. And um, I'm, I'm telling them loud and clear, if you don't create great cultures and great places for people to work and focus on employee engagement and ask your people how they want to work, you will have a hard time getting and keeping people. Yeah, my sense is uh, leaders thought it was hard pre-COVID to, satis to satisfy their employees. I think um, they pine for the days of what they had before pre-COVID when there was this, to your point, this awakening potentially in the workforce. Um, a little bit later in this conversation, I'm gonna ask Laura to give us some ideas on how she's consulting with her clients to deal with this issue relative to wage inflation. But I'd like to turn my attention um, back to you and your business. You know, 27 years, congratulations. You know, it's really hard to make it 5, 10, 20. It's, it's, it's an accomplishment. But I'm wondering, how long did it take you after you launched Conover Consulting to look at your business and go, oh, I can trust this thing. I, I actually have a reliable revenue source and income stream here. I would say minimum three years, more like three, four, five absolutely a number of years absolutely it does not happen quickly and and you to as we said in the top of the show you were prepared for this i mean you studied you had a craft a career you were you were anticipating this role and so uh, i think that's a transferable lesson for uh, entrepreneurs out there young entrepreneurs don't have to be young in calendar age young in time being an entrepreneur that it takes longer maybe than we would like in many cases to get to a business that is actually uh, an ongoing concern that will survive. It does. Um, you have to have a lot of grit and persistence and um, you know, just the ability to say, I'm not quitting. I'm not giving this up. And you need, depending on your situation, you know, probably some extra cash in the bank. <laughs> you know, the ability to say and understand, I'm not going to have a straight line of cash flow coming in the first few years, most likely. Sure, there are those who have an amazing idea and it takes off right away. But, you Good know, yeah, everybody. yay for those folks. But that's not the norm. Yes, and, and I think uh, cash flow historically is a major reason why businesses fail. We underestimate mm -hmm. how much money, how long it's going to take until we get the break even, and then we can maybe actually start taking the pay. Because usually the last person get, that gets paid for the, in an entrepreneurial startup is the entrepreneur who started the company. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pay all your suppliers and any other contractors you have, and right. if there's anything left, you peel a little bit off for yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Three years minimum, kind of. So let's talk about the other side of it, which is all too common for entrepreneurs. Is was there a time, Laura, in your business when, after you felt like you had the business you could trust, actually circumstances and events caused you to think, "I may lose this business. It may not be viable long term as I had previously thought it would be." And if that happened, when was that? And can you give us some sense for why that happened? Yes. When the downturn hit in 07, 08, uh, long about the fall of 07 and early 08, I wondered if my model was broken. 
I started looking for potential jobs. Oh. Um, I didn't want to be an employee again because I love the variety and autonomy of being self-employed. And I just, you know, by then I'd been at it for many, many years, but the project work was very slow at that time during the downturn. You know, understandably, if you're an employer and you're in the middle of a really big recession, you don't usually say, okay, I'm going to go hire a compensations consultant to fine tune employee pay. You kind of say to employees, be glad you have a job, right? I mean, that's reality. So it was, it was slow, but I, I kept up my networking. I do a lot of networking and um, stayed in touch with my clients, stayed close to my clients and kept giving them support. And um, there was also a, a personal, more personal part of this in the midst of all of the, what was going on in the world and our economy. Um, my mom died of cancer mm -hmm. in October of 2006. And so I, I'm an only child and I was doing my best to, to be with her and my dad as she was declining and trying to keep my business going and spend time with my husband and our girls. And so by the time the downturn was kind of in, in full force, so to speak, I had lost some of the kind of the traction behind me in the fall of 06 and earlier in 06 with respect to attending conferences and the kinds of things that helped put um, potential new projects behind me in my pipeline, so to speak. So that was a very challenging couple of years. Both, you know, personally and with my work. So, so uh, I don't mean to <clears throat> to take you back to those t that time, but I'm really curious because um, that would be the moment that maybe some people would throw in the towel and and say, I I just can't take all of this. There's too much risk or whatever in my life, and I need something. What kept you going during those moments when you might have thought about? actually accepting a job offer versus just looking for a job? First, I have an incredibly supportive husband. I have to say that. We are a team and he's my biggest fan in my work, always has been, always will be. And he understood that the way that we had created our family life worked well with my self-employment and um, that in the good years, I really added a lot to our, you know, our bottom line <laughs> as a conover company, so to speak. And um, I also kept in front of me my top priority, which for me had been and always was while I was raising our girls, I wanted to be able to be involved with them and their lives and keep building my career and my work and my company. And that was my top priority and that didn't change through the downturn. So I had a year or two of lower income and we had a few years where maybe we took smaller, less fancy vacations. <laughs> we survived. Yeah. And I kept my why in front of me and didn't waver from that. 
you know, one of the things that I think is underreported in the media is this understanding of what the COVID has done to entrepreneurs and business owners. And we talk about the great resignation, but I'm, I'm sensing there are a lot of business owners who may be looking at this next round and going, you know, I survived the great recession, but this one is just so much longer and seems to be never ending. I'm wondering, I haven't seen articles about entrepreneurs who are frankly giving up or maybe retiring early or just not wanting to fight the fight any longer. But uh, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on your story because maybe for some of those people that are thinking about, maybe it's time to call it quits. Maybe they'll be a little more inspired to stay in there a little longer because I hope, I hope they do. The world needs their help. Yeah, I hope they can. Now, and this is like anything in life and business, you know, what I'm saying worked for me and my particular set, my particular fact pattern. Mm -hmm. And this is not one size fits all, like anything else in life, what works for particular people and particular groups of you know, family groupings, however those are comprised, that's different for everyone. So I have to say that. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and, and we have time left to do that, is really the, the practice, the trade that you have, the consulting on compensation. You know, I have heard from the companies that I support that this concern that they are seeing a significant wage inflation to keep either good employees or to attract people because many companies are growing through the recession, through the pandemic and are having good business conditions, but they're still struggling to keep and maintain and hire the talent that they need. And they're worried that the cost basis that they're setting today is the precedent they won't be able to come off of in the future because the pendulum has swung so far to, as you said earlier, to the employee kind of in the negotiations. So from, from your vantage point, what are you, how are you helping your clients to deal with if this is a real fear that you're seeing as well, this concern? I'm absolutely seeing this with my clients. Uh, one of the things I've been doing the last few months is spending a lot of time helping clients model what it would cost to raise the floor on their, their wages, maybe to $18 an hour or $20 an hour in many cases. Um, in Southern, uh, in California, we're seeing that's, that's what we need to consider. And it's important to run the models because it's not always as expensive as we might think it might be to make a move like that. Hmm. So I think what I'd like people to hear with that is if they are concerned about you know, the, the floor rising on wages, so to speak. And well, what do we do about it? Run the numbers, see what it would cost. And of course, in California, if you do that, you have to think about California Fair Pay Act implications. And when you raise the floor, you can have pay compression issues and you have to watch out for um, ensuring appropriate differences in pay based on tenure and performance and differences that might, you want to make sure you don't have differences that might look like they are based on gender, race, or ethnicity. So that's a little side note. But along with that, I think part of the perspective is things, the numbers won't keep going up forever. Our business cycles are just that, cycles. 
Real estate prices rise and fall. The stock market rises and falls. Wages, I don't think wages are going to fall per se in the next year or two, but I do think at some point employers will stop saying, I'm willing to engage in that, um, that uh, bidding war for that software developer with the company across town. I think you know, that is happening now. I have clients mm -hmm. telling me about situations like that. I think at some point employers are going to start saying enough is enough. And you know, th there is a ceiling to how much I will pay. I understand there are some types of very unique talent skill sets for which employers have to pay top dollar right now. I get that. But I think it's at some point we're going to see some leveling out of um, salaries and wages. And you got to remember, this is absolutely the time to keep drilling culture and leadership stuff. At the end of the day, top performers in particular are all about culture and what is it like to work for the employer? Do I have a boss who recognizes my contributions? Do I have a boss who hears me? Even if I don't, I, I don't expect to get what I want all the time, but who leaves me feeling heard even after difficult conversations? Do I have top leadership at the organization that I can trust? Or do they say one thing and do another? Are people held accountable from the top to the bottom of the organization? Those are just a few of the marks of, of good cultures that we look for. And, and yeah. really, that's, it's everything, even more, more so than it was before COVID. So, so I have a couple um, follow-ups, if I could. Uh, culture, I agree, I agree, people quit the boss, right? But when they're sitting there with a 20% or more job offer from a different company, how do you... Can you do you coach your clients to try to monetize the benefit the benefits that go along with being an, an employee? I mean the real benefits, the, the cost of healthcare. My sense is strong cultured companies with good leadership also understand the need for a robust benefits program that supports the, their employees. Do, do you help them to try to monetize what employees may take for granted that aren't always offered in other companies? I do, and that is a tough message to get across. Why? I think in part, um, it kind of goes back to our initial conversation about being an entrepreneur and running your own show. Until you've done that and had to cover the cost of your own health insurance <laughs> and no one's giving you paid vacation right. and you buy your own disability insurance, and your own long-term care insurance and your own health insurance, you know, your, all of that, own life insurance, until you have to pay all those bills out of your own pocket, I think it's a tough, it's a really tough situation to try to help people who've always been employees really understand the value of what their employer is giving them from a monetary standpoint. And we use, the, um, the typical kind of annual benefits and total compensation statements, that kind of thing. And I think we need to continue to do that. And we need to try to help people understand 
you, know, you get a lot more from your employer than just what you see in your you know, net pay every pay period. And so I think that's a big hurdle. Um, as, and the, trying to monetize the value of a great culture, there are studies that have been done that show that companies with great leaders and great cultures are more profitable. Mm -hmm. There is ROI in this stuff. There's lower turnover. Turnover is incredibly expensive. Having to hire and train new people costs a lot of time and a lot of money. Um, and happy people, happy employees are definitely more productive. So there's there's ROI in the culture stuff. Not always super easy to measure, but it's there. Mm -hmm. I had uh, an experience with one of the business owners that I support who told me recently that um, you know he's had conversations with some of his key employees who have told him there have been job offers to them for more money, but they are staying for the relationship they have with him and the company and the and the career that they've had there. And he doesn't feel like they were putting a gun to their heads, you know, talking about money, but really asking for more money, but mm -hmm. honestly telling him working for you has a value beyond what's being offered in the marketplace, which I think supports your point. Absolutely. And I have heard stories like that. And I've had a few conversations with a few clients in the last few months around, I think you need to step out of this particular bidding war. <laughs> Literally, because I have talked with them. I have Let had go. conversations, you know, and it's like if that employee wants to go to the other, you know, to your competition for 30,000 more, let them, because I'm not sure it's a good long-term choice for your organization for you to keep participating in that particular bidding war. I'm, thank you, Amy, for making a comment. It's great to see it on the screen here that cult, great culture is priceless. Once you've worked in a bad culture as an employee, it becomes much more valuable. That is, that's, you know, I think experience is the best teacher in business. And that, Amy, your point really, for me, rings true to be the case. And, what, and the opposite is true uh, for my adult children who are now off on their own. But when they were younger, uh, it was really important to me that they at least got some part-time job for a good employer. My, my daughter, our daughter was able to work for a local restaurant and the owner is super good and has a great culture and great staff. My son worked for Trader Joe's, which has, I think, a really strong culture. Right. And so yeah. I wanted them to know what it was like to work for in a good place so that they could identify those maybe in their later in their career that weren't healthy. You know, there's one other question I have to ask you before we call this thing to an end. But thank you, Amy, for being a part of the show today. Um, and that is, do, are you finding Southern California businesses middle market companies looking beyond the traditional employee population, in other words, out of state and locales where they wouldn't have normally looked for talent? Yes. So are, are they being successful in that endeavor? First, I think the jury's still out on whether or not they're being successful, but I have a client that is specifically looking at setting up kind of pods of IT employees in Phoenix and Austin. This is a very good sized company based in Orange County. And they said, you know, we can get IT talent cheaper in those other locations. And we could go with the kind of, you know, one off, try to hire, you know, just individual people in these other markets. But 
maybe we should go so far as to have small satellite offices for IT folks in those locations. So they, they're definitely trying to be creative and think outside the box with respect to how do I find talent? And, and I also have many clients who are hiring people who you know, don't live in the same state where, as where the client is um, headquartered. Um, when you know, they're hiring people who are in different locations, when pre-COVID, they would not have made a move like that. May you live in interesting times, and these are those, aren't they, Laura? All right. Well, you know, this has been fascinating, and I really have enjoyed it. I hope the people that are participating live on our platforms today feel the same way. And if you're listening to us as a podcast, try to listen to us live and engage in the conversation as Amy did earlier. We encourage that as well. If someone would like to connect with you, you know, either here on LinkedIn or on your other platforms, how do they find you, Laura? Um, on LinkedIn under Laura Conover and on Instagram under Conover Consulting Inc. Those are two really good places to connect. Okay. And I also have a YouTube channel. So the, the, the audio people who listen to the podcast may not be seeing your name on the screen. So how do you spell your last name? C-O-N-O-V-E-R, Conover. Well, thank you for giving up your knowledge, a little bit of it, and your time and your experience for our for this conversation today. I really have enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. I really appreciate the opportunity and, and enjoyed the time also. Great. And for, uh, you're welcome. And for those of you, I hope all of your business decisions move your enterprise and your entrepreneurial business in a positive direction. Mm -hmm.